Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Today I'm starting a new series called Supernatural. Amen. Supernatural. And my message really is a challenge to you. I want to challenge those of you in this room to believe in a supernatural Jesus. Not just a movie Jesus, not just the concept of Jesus that you might have in your own mind, but I'm going to challenge you to believe in the Jesus that we see within scriptures, this Jesus who is supernatural, and not only that, this Jesus who calls us to a supernatural life. Amen? I want to start by sharing a couple thoughts with you about faith, because really, my challenge today is to try to shake us out of what's happened to us in Western culture, where we emphasize, because of science, and I'm, I'm okay with science, I just want to say that, but because of the scientific method, we often feel like if you can't measure it in a laboratory, it must not be true, right? And we know that there are so many things within creation that are immeasurable at this point. And so my challenge for us today is not only to believe in that supernatural Jesus that it's in the Bible, but that your own faith would, even if it's a mustard seed, that you would appeal to God to grow it so that you might see Him as He really is. Amen? In the 1800s, there was a man named George Mueller, and he was famous in England for starting orphanages all over England, and thousands of children were cared for during a time when children were just cast to the streets. And one of the things that was amazing about George Mueller is that he, when he started his ministry, he said this, he said, I'm not going to write letters to churches and pastors, I'm not going to tell anybody what I'm doing, I'm not going to lay out what my needs are. He felt a challenge personally from God to bring each of his needs for the children directly to God in prayer and to trust God to meet those needs. So he didn't tell anybody. He had hundreds and hundreds of children, and over the course of many years, it went into the thousands. And he didn't ask people, give to this. He felt like in his generation, people needed to see a demonstration of faith that God was the provider. And so he would just say, you know, Lord, here we are. We need breakfast, lunch, and dinner today. We don't have anything for these kids. We ask you to provide for us. And he had story after story after story, miraculous stories. Things like, you know, the, the morning milk cart with all kinds of milk products and cheese and different things going by on the road in front of his place and breaking down and they're going to have to waste all of it and they bring it to the door of the orphanage. They were literally in there that morning, the children praying, oh God, provide for us. And somebody knocks on the door and says, hey, we have a bunch of food here for you, a bunch of, you know, milk products and if we don't give them to you right now, they're going to go bad. Things like that happened over and over and over and over again. And this is what one of the things he said. He says, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. You see, we're a generation that emphasizes our own human power, our own human wisdom, our own human intelligence all the time. But God's power is in the realm of faith. It goes beyond human power. 
Oswald Chambers, the, the man who wrote a really famous daily devotional called My Utmost for His Highest, said this, faith is the inborn capacity to see God behind everything, the wonder that keeps you an eternal child, for wonder is the very essence of life. And so faith is really having wonder about God and what He's doing in the world, being able to see the action of God in the world. You know, many times when we think of Jesus, we think He's changed. We read the Bible stories. I mean, think about it. We read about Jesus. What, what does He do? He does things like raise dead people. He walks on water. He multiplies, you know, a few fish and loaves of bread. There's a crowd of 5,000 in front of Him. He multiplies them. And before you know it, He's fed 5,000 plus people. I mean, over and over, He, helped, he healed sick people, lepers, whose bodies were filled with sores, were healed instantaneously. Blind people who'd never seen saw. Deaf people who never heard could suddenly hear. People who were oppressed by demon spirits, by devils, by demonic presence. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about, right? But people who were oppressed by evil were liberated and set free. And when, it, when he was done with them, they were in their right mind, and able to function in life. And we look at that and we say, wow, I love those Bible stories. Those are great. Jesus is awesome. But in our mind, what we're saying is, I love those Bible stories. Too bad he doesn't do those things anymore. Right? Hello? Is anybody alive in here? But he does. And that's really my challenge to us today is that God would once again remind us that the Jesus that we serve as Lord and Savior is supernatural. He transcends His creation. He upholds it by the word of His power. He's over all of it. Listen to what Hebrews 13.8 says. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Will you read that out loud with me? Let's say this again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's do it one more time. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's reality. So that's kind of my foundational text for where I want to go today. And I want to take you to a really powerful story where Jesus has an encounter. He has an encounter with a boy who is demon-possessed. And as he liberates this boy, he addresses the crowd that is gathered. Now, I have to give you a little bit of background. Let me tell you what's just happened. Before this encounter, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up on a mountain. And while he's up on a mountain, I want you to think about this. How many of you have an imagination still? Adulthood hasn't ruined you. Okay, so, and if you have been ruined, I'm just going to pray that right now the Lord heal your imagination. Okay, so go there with me. Let's go there together. Let's pray for healed imaginations. We're going to go, we're going to time travel. We're going to go 2,000 years and just imagine you're Peter, James, or John, and Jesus says, hey, come with me and we're going to go up to the top of this mountain. So they go up to the top of this mountain and they get up on the top of this mountain and they're hanging out and all of a sudden, Jesus starts to shine. I want you to think about this, who he really is, 
See, before this, he had been veiled. His humanity was the main thing the disciples noticed about him. He's a man, and that's beautiful. He's a man, but he wasn't just a man. And all of a sudden, while he's on this mountain, he starts to glow. And this glowing gets brighter and brighter to the point to where the Scripture says in one of the Gospels that even his clothing is shining. And he's up on this mountain, and Peter and James and John are looking at him. They're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And then two of the greatest people in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, appear with him. So we've got Moses, we've got Elijah, we've got Jesus, we've got the three of them, and, and Peter's there, and James and John are there, and they're watching Jesus shine, and they're seeing their heroes, Moses and Elijah, and they're just freaking out, and Peter starts to talk like he always did. Peter had this issue, whenever something dramatic was happening, he felt like he had to talk, nervous talk, you know what I mean? He's like, I, 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 we need to build three tents here, Lord. And right as he speaks, a giant cloud comes, and it covers them, and the voice of God audibly speaks from heaven. And God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the Bible says that Peter, they all fall on their faces like you and I would. They fall to their faces and they're terrified. And Jesus walks over to them and he takes them by the hand and he lifts them up. And it says, and when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus alone. Okay, so there's this beautiful story. It starts with Jesus it ends with Jesus, and the point of it is Jesus is what it's all about, even more than Moses and Elijah, right? So they have that experience. They're on the mountaintop. They have this experience, like the song that we sing, right? They come down off the mountain, and they experience what all of us experience so often after we have a mountaintop experience with God. So I want you to see this story. This is profound story. It says, and when they came, they, meaning Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Can we get this text up? I want everybody to see it here. And scribes arguing with them. And immediately, oh, oh, by the way, the scribes, scribes were those who wrote down all of the Old Testament. So these were religious leaders who were trained to literally sit in a room with other scribes in the room, and they would take all of the Old Testament scrolls, and they would open up the scrolls, and they would take an empty scroll, and they would record every jot and every tittle, and as they did, they had to speak it out. And the other scribes would be looking on in a copied version, making sure that everything that they were speaking out as they said the different jots and tittles, the different Hebrew characters, every one of them were accurate. And this is how the Bible was passed on generation to generation to generation. You literally had an entire section of the priesthood that was trained to sit in a room with others. They would also debate with the scripture and teach others. But one of the main things they did is sat in a room and called out every letter. It would be like calling a A, C, L, and the others, yeah, you know, basically check, check, check. That's how they made sure that the scripture was accurate. They tested every single character. Okay, so these scribes are arguing with the other disciples. 
And Jesus comes down to this crowd, and it says, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. By the way, um, I, I think it's interesting that they were greatly amazed. What were they greatly amazed at? Think about it. What were they greatly amazed at? I, I, I've um, speculated that maybe, you know, in the Old Testament, when Moses came down off the mountain, his face shone, and they had to cover his face. I wonder if Jesus was still kind of glowing a bit. Wouldn't that be a trip? You know, he comes down off the mountain, and they go, you know, he's wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Anyway, that's just me. It doesn't say that in the Bible, okay? So it's just my, my holy imagination. Okay, they were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him, and they greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, can't talk. And whenever it seizes him, the spirit seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I hear the heartbreak of God. Do you hear it? He's not being like, he's not rebuking him. He's, oh, faithless generation. And, and can, you, can you hear? How many of you have ever, you know, done this with your kids, right? How long do I have to put up with you? That's what he's saying. How long? Do I have to bear with you? How long do I have to be with you? Are you ever going to believe? What's it going to take for you to be faithful? Okay, so he, he says that to him. Bring him to me. Bring the child to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father, and the chi- father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, King James, New King James adds the words, the the older, actually the the newer manuscripts, they're not as old, adds the word prayer and fasting. Okay, but what he's saying is these kind of demons sometimes can't come out except by concentrated prayer, and that can include fasting. Okay, so let's let's look at this story. Let's break it down. I'm just going to take a few minutes and... And, and share some thoughts with you about it that I think should challenge us. The first one is that conflict often comes after a mountaintop experience. I shared this recently in another message. You know, it says that uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John just before this happened, and he went up to this mountain, and he had, they had that whole experience. Now, you can imagine, think about this, you can imagine you just saw the Son of God shine like the sun, 
You just saw Moses and Elijah, the two greatest figures of the entire Old Testament. Nobody had seen them for thousands of years. You just saw all of that on that mountaintop. Okay, you're with the Son of God. Not only that, a cloud overshadowed you and God spoke. And He said, this is my Son. Listen to Him. You've had that. Can, and then, oh, what I didn't tell you was right after that happened, Jesus turned to the disciples and said, I don't want you to tell anybody about this until the Son of Man's been glorified. And of course, they didn't know what that meant. But keep this to yourself. Can you imagine? <laughs> So they're coming, down, they're coming down off the mountain, and they're just, they're just, you know, you can imagine, they're practically floating. It's like, what just happened? Dude, did you, did, did that really happen? Was he shining like the sun? Were his clothes shining? Was that Moses and Elijah? What about, did, did you guys hear the voice? You can imagine, all of this was happening. They come down off the mountain, and the first thing they face is a conflict. And what I want to say to many of you in this room is when you have a mountaintop experience with God, prepare yourself for the conflict and the tension that often follows it. Amen? Amen. Because there's an enemy in the world. He's after you. He wants to rob from you what God showed you. But here's the thing I want you to recognize. God saw it coming before it happened, and the actual encounter you had on the mountaintop was to prepare you for the conflict that you found in the valley. Amen? So, the disciples and the scribes are arguing. A crowd is looking on. You can almost hear the crowd going, fight, 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 fight. And then Jesus comes right into the middle of all of it. And he establishes reality, ultimate reality, liberation to a child. And the argument here was about why the disciples couldn't cast the demon out of the sick boy. And the scribes were kind of like mockers, those who remind us of our failures. You have people ever like this in your life? They, of course, they they didn't mention the fact that the disciples had already cast out many demons from people. That's what the Scripture records. They only concentrate on the one that had not worked. Many times people can doubt our encounters with God because we're not 100% successful, you know. Sometimes we have encounters with God, but we still got issues in our life, right? So somebody encounters God, they change their life, they get baptized like Bethany today, and they're on a, they're on a new road, and they're celebrating, and, and they go out, and they're trying to serve God, and they're doing the best they can, but there's other people, the skeptics, the old crowd, and they're like, yeah, we'll see if it lasts. Yeah, we'll see if it's real. Yeah, we'll see if it's legit. You know what I mean, Jacob? You go up there to the mountain with the men, right? And God rocks your world. Then you come home and there's the conflict. And, and then there's the doubters. And there's the people that are telling you it ain't real. And, and, and they, they focus on your failure and not your many successes. That's a reality. You still with me? Secondly, Jesus is grieved when he faces a faithless generation. 19 and 20, uh, verse 19 again. He answered them, oh, faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It seems like we live in a faithless generation in our time as well. Many of our time, in our time, have abandoned belief in a powerful, miracle-working God and Christ. We like a safe and respectable God, not a messy, demon-casting, table-turning Christ. We want a nice, powerless, success-giving God. We want a God who will not require us to belong to Him. 
We want a God who serves us and adjusts to all of our cultural sins and ideals. Fortunately for us, that God's not found in the Bible or in Christ. Amen? You know, I, I, I want to I challenge your thinking today. I want to ask you, what does your Jesus look like? The Jesus, if you're a believer, this Jesus that you worship, what's He look like? When you read the Bible and, you know, you're going through the Gospels or you're going through any part of the Bible because we know Jesus represents the Father and everything that Jesus is shows us what the Father is like. And so even the God of the Old Testament, when Jesus manifested Himself and came on the scene, He was showing us what that God of the Old Testament was like, right? He's giving us the full expression of His personhood. That's who Jesus is, right? And so when you read the Scripture or when you dig into the Bible and you come across stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable, you're reading along and, you know, you like this miracle-working Jesus and look how kind He was here and go and sin no more. And then all of a sudden you come across this Jesus who's calling people on their stuff. You come across this Jesus that's upturning tables and this Jesus that's getting mad and rebuking Pharisees, this Jesus that's calling people on their, their judgments. This Jesus that's calling people to repent and turn from their sin. What happens when you read the Bible and you come across parts of it that make you feel uncomfortable and that you don't like? Because this is what most of us do. We don't even realize we're doing it, but we're reading through the Scripture and we're going like this. I like this. I don't like this. I like this. I don't like this. And we do that through the Scripture. And before you know it, we have built in our mind an image of God that suits us. It's actually a reflection of us, and it's not the God of the Bible, it's an idol. We're worshiping idols. And then when we go to this God in prayer, we wonder why we don't see things happen. It's because we've made an idol of our own thoughts about God. What does the Scripture tell us about Jesus? What does the Scripture have to... He's a supernatural God. When He comes into the midst of your situation, He might say to you, go and sell all you have and come and follow me. What do we do with a God like that? What do we do when God breaks in on our world and turns all of our tables upside down and calls us to follow Him and be devoted to Him and reminds us that you don't belong to yourself. I purchased you with my own blood on the cross. I own you. We call Him Lord. The word means master. That's not a popular word right now. It's not acceptable, but it is the word master. We belong to Him, but we assert our rights our self-ownership, the fact that we're in charge of our own destiny in life. I am my own Lord. I am my own God. And yet the gospel calls us to embrace Him, follow Him, love Him, be devoted to Him. Am I talking to anybody? He's supernatural. He has a right to us. He gave up heaven to come to earth to redeem us and restore us. All of creation belongs to him. That's why he died. You're his. And by the way, he can do a far better job with your life than you can. Let me just say that. Okay, before you get all, you know, well, wait, what, what, what are you talking about? Amen. He's grieved when he faces a faithless generation. He says, how long? And the, but I love this. But bring the boy to me. Now, here's the other side. 
Some people teach about faith like this. If your faith, if your confession and your belief about faith is imperfect and pure, and if it falters at all, you won't be healed. God won't provide for you. God won't come through for you. And the one example that's used is that Jesus came into Nazareth, his hometown, and he couldn't perform many signs and wonders and miracles because the people didn't believe. That's the one section of Scripture that's used. I have a little bit different take on that. I don't believe that Jesus' hands were tied. I believe basically what that meant is the people were so familiar with him, they wouldn't even bring the needs to him. Because Jesus, we know in the Bible that everyone that came to him, he met their need. Do we know of any example where he didn't? Not one. So unbelief doesn't keep God from working because suddenly his hands are tied and he's powerless. Unbelief keeps God from working because we won't even come to him, because we won't acknowledge that he's the answer. We become familiar with him. We make him small. We make him too human. And his humanity is important, but he's God too, God in the flesh. He's deity. Right? And so what's Jesus do? I love what Jesus does. He, he, right after he says, oh, faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long do I have to bear with you? Bring the child to me. And he brings the child in spite of their unbelief, and he heals him. He liberates him. And that's what he does for us. Listen, if you're counting on your faith to be healed, to be provided for, you're counting on the wrong thing. Your faith only has to be the size of a mustard seed. Faith is about the object, not about your faith. Faith in your faith is failure. Faith in God, your object is victory. You can trust Him. If you put your trust and your faith in Him, He's going to do what He's going to do. You go to Him, amen? I hope I'm talking to somebody other than myself in this room. And his presence provokes demonic presence. Immediately, the demons manifested and Jesus dealt with them. Now, I have to move really quickly here, but let me just share this. Let me remind you also, this text shows us that devils have plans to destroy your life. Devils have plans to destroy your life. Now, a lot of people don't want to talk about the devil in church anymore. It's weird. But, and I, and I, I know there were movements that happened in the past decades where we talked about the devil too much. There's a devil behind every doorknob. Everything that happened wrong in someone's life was a demon. And that's wrong, too. That's just weird. How many of you know that's weird? See, that's weird. Right? But here's the reality. You have an enemy. You have an adversary. There are spiritual beings actively in our world to bring destruction to people. There are also... How many of you believe in angels? Okay, you can't believe in angels and not also believe in devils. Because they're in the same classification. So here's the reality. There are forces at work in our world that oppress people, that deceive people, that afflict people, that lie to people. The Scripture says even Satan himself comes as an angel of light. So he doesn't show up, you know, with a pitchfork, with a tail and horns and red and like, hey, it's me, the devil, good to meet you, okay? It's not how the devil shows up. <laughs> he, he comes looking beautiful. 
he comes, just in the same way when he came to the woman in the garden, he, he said, hey, look, you know what he wants to do is he wants to divert our attention from God to something beautiful. In this case, it was the fruit. Look at it. You want it. It's going to taste good. And that's how he works in our lives as well. He preys on our weaknesses. He knows our desires. He knows those desires that are unlawful. And he helps those things happen. And he's out to destroy us. He has plans for our life. You know, somebody used to say years ago, God has a wonderful plan for you, right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. And that's the reality. And, and I love what Jesus says here. He says, how long has this been happening to the Father? And the Father says, from childhood. And I thought that was interesting because I've noticed that Satan always looks for an entrance into our lives when we are children because we are vulnerable and open. I remember gathering with my cousins in a garage and doing seances. And we thought it was cute, breaking out a candle, right, doing seances, inviting spirits to come in, you know. And I remember my one cousin got caught one time kind of blowing on the candle, you know. <laughs> and we think that's cute and funny, and kids do that, and they dabble. No, it's not. Whenever you open yourself up through witchcraft, through the occult, um, it can happen e even through different uses of drugs and things, where you open yourself up to occult activity, you're, you're inviting the enemy, and somewhere in this child's life, darkness came as a child and began to afflict him, right? And, and so Jesus set him free. Jesus healed him. And I love this next point, and that is that doubt that leads to desperation can become faith. This father had doubt, but it led to desperation, and desperation turned into faith. See, some people will tell you that you should never have doubt. That is wrong. It's not biblical. Doubt is many times the seedbed for faith. Here's what happens with doubt. Doubt lays here like this. It comes up in our life. And if we turn with our doubts to God, it moves us toward faith. But if we turn away from God, we start to move away from just doubt to unbelief. There's a difference between doubt and faithlessness or doubt and unbelief. But all of us have doubts. Do any of you ever struggle with doubts? Come on, be honest. Any of you ever have those thoughts come up and say, is this a pipe dream? Am I crazy? And you're afraid to even tell other people you have those doubts, right? But they're normal. They're normal. Doubts are normal. I have doubts. It's not a sin to doubt. It's a sin to have unbelief, to become faithless, to turn away. But if my doubts lead me to say, help my unbelief, now I've turned to the right source. It's like Jesus said, oh, you got your little mustard seed there? That's enough for me to heal your son. And now you cried out for me to take that little mustard seed and grow it, and I'm going to do that. He'll meet you in your doubts. Does that make sense? I love that. I believe. He says that. Listen to this. It sounds like a contradiction. I believe. Help my unbelief. What's he saying? That his faith has mixture like all of us. Let's be honest. All of us have mixture. Sometimes we have days we feel like we have faith to move a mountain. Other days we're like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Anybody there? I don't know what I believe. That's reality. That's life. But if we turn in our moments of doubt and say, God, Help my unbelief, he'll meet us. Amen. And lastly, when we believe, Jesus takes action. The crowd ran together, 
And Jesus wanted to get it done before Mayhem broke out. He cast the demon out with authority. He rebuked it, commanded it to leave. The demon came out violently and injured the child, and that's often what Satan tries to do. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And this beautiful language illustrates the character of Jesus perfectly. This is the type of what he'll do with all of us. He'll take us in our moment when we're beat up and broken, and he'll lift us. One of the beautiful prophecies about Jesus says this about him. It says, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish, and a bruised reed he will not break. And it's, it's symbolic language, talking about people. Sometimes all you are is a smoldering wick, and you beat yourself up, and you feel like, I don't have, there's no flame, there's no fire. God must be displeased with me, must be angry with me. He's probably going to come along any minute and just, you know, and put it out. Or I'm a bruised reed. A reed was like a, you know, like a, almost like a tall piece of grass, right? A reed next to the water. And a, a bruised reed was a reed that had been hit and it was bent over a little bit and it was ready to snap off. And he's saying when you're there, when your faith is weak, when you're discouraged, when you're beat down, when you feel like your fire's almost going to go out, when you feel like you're about to snap, Jesus Christ loves you so much that he'll come to you and he won't extinguish you. He'll blow on the flame, right? He'll begin to relight it. He'll come to your bruised reed and he'll put it up straight and he'll heal it. That's what he does. That's his nature. He comes to us when we're down and he lifts us up, not kicks us. That's you need to have faith. I'm so ashamed of you. What a terrible Christian you are. Bam, get away from me. He doesn't do that. He comes and he lifts us. He comes, he takes our little mustard seed and he makes it bigger. He meets us in our weakness. He's not expecting perfection from you. He just wants you to turn with your doubts to him and he will meet you because he loves you. You're his beloved. Do you understand that? You're his children. You're his beloved. And he's a supernatural God, and he cares about you and your situation, your life, your marriage, your home, your money, all of it, your children. He cares about you. He's for you. He's fighting for you, and he's powerful, and he's awesome, and he's great, and he's kind, and he's wise, and he's good, and he's just, and he's merciful, and he's patient, and he'll never give up on you, and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is a good God. He's a good Lord. He's a good father, and he's going to fight for you, run after you, be a warrior for you, and when you're at a moment when you feel like you're going to break and fall apart, he's going to come through for you. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, his face upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you. God loves you. Go with God. He goes with you. God bless you all.